The opposite of fear is bravery. Hmm. Nope. The opposite of fear is curiosity. Is the glass half empty? Is it half full? That misses the point. Elevating curiosity will help you see and understand what's in the glass. This is Applied Curiosity Lab Radio, the podcast of curiosity. In each episode, Becky Saltzman interviews unconventional thinkers and doers in her unconventional way to dissect and uncover what you can use to see things others miss, make better decisions, and apply your talents in new and profound ways. Elevate curiosity, escape the boundaries of ordinary. I think in a two-year time period, I had to move seven times right when I started this campaign. You had to move? Seven times, yeah, in two years. Because they kept finding me, and I didn't know how they were finding me. You know, now I knew that there were practitioners that worked for the utility companies. They were tracking me through utilities and through background searches. So we've, we've gotten smarter. Kudo, welcome to the show. I'm so excited to talk to you today. Thanks so much for having me. I'm pumped to get things going. I know you were actively involved in the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals, but do you have a story about the day that your entire life became about this work with ARM? Yeah, you know, I actually do. I started with the SPCA as a volunteer, and that's what I was doing on that particular day when an investigator asked me to lend a hand to a injured horse in the field, and she was actually meeting law enforcement. So we drove out to an isolated area in the western part of South Florida. And it was an area called the C9 Basin, which was right on the fringe of the Everglades, basically a no man's land, which I certainly had never been before. Entering the area, I started seeing signs for Santeria, worshiping, selling animals for black magic. And the properties were decrepit, really actually disgusting. Once we got to the property where we were meeting law enforcement, it turned out to be an illegal slaughterhouse, which I didn't know existed at the time. Thousands of animals in decrepit situations, and there were a lot, a lot of horses, which I was surprised to see myself growing up as a horse owner, having horses and not knowing that they were being butchered for meat in our own country in the United States. Long story short, there was a thoroughbred turned out to be tied to a palm tree where the horse was covered in blood in really bad shape. And it turned out that was the kill tree where they would stab the horses to death before being butchered. And I didn't leave that farm that day without this horse. I, I kind of fell for him immediately. And later on, it turned out that he was a racehorse. He was a thoroughbred racehorse. He was tattooed on the inside of his upper lip, which most or actually all thoroughbred racehorses are. That's how they're identified in the racing world. And I tracked his lineage through that tattoo number to Secretariat. It was his grandfather and one of the most famous racehorses on our planet. And this horse went by the name of Freedom's Flight, was his race name, which I kept for him. And he was very famous in his own right, broke his leg at the Florida Derby, and went from literally worth millions of dollars to $50. And that's what they sold him for, basically for the price of his hide, to the illegal slaughterhouse. I actually, you know, fell in love with him and still have him to this day. He's on my property. He's about 100 feet from me as I speak. Life-changing moment for myself. Prior to going to that operation that day, I didn't understand the magnitude of the animal cruelty existing in this country. And it was an eye-opener, as you said, life-changing. 
Wow, what a fascinating story. And also, I want to touch on a little bit about the C9 Basin. Is that Canal Basin 9? Is that what that stands for in Florida? You got it. Okay. Correct. All right. And also want to delve a little bit into the definition of humane. But before we do that, are you a vegan, a vegetarian, omnivorous? I am a new vegan, actually. And it took it took years to come about. I've been undercover for roughly 10 years in some of the worst establishments on our planet. And most of those years, I, I was still eating meat. I grew up with an Irish mother. Not that that is an excuse, but I grew up with you know, meat and potatoes on my dinner table and a big glass of milk on a nightly basis. And it took a while to get that out of my system. But I now understand what type of cruelty there is, even in the the most humane slaughterhouses for these animals. So I changed my diet as well as for health reasons. But yeah, so I am am a new vegan, yeah. New vegan. Okay, I want to make this palatable and understanding to people for whom veganism has been a lifelong way of life, a lifelong lifestyle, and for people who are omnivorous. So the mission statement of the animal recovery mission is to eliminate extreme animal cruelty operations worldwide, to be an uncompromising force for the welfare of animals, putting an end to and preventing pain, suffering, and torture inflicted as a result of inhumane practices. But to people who continue to eat meat, like me, at least as of today, how do you describe humane and can animals have rights and still be dinner? Yeah, I mean, that's a very good question and a, and a real serious argument on both sides. Humane doesn't exist. Humane can exist for the killing of an animal. I, I'm not saying that it can't. A proper size caliber bullet directed to the right part of an animal's head and brain at times is, is the most humane way to kill an animal. The problem is the auctions, how some of these animals are raised the feedlots, the transportation, that's where you're getting into a real gray area. And as far as humane goes, it doesn't exist. So in other words, unless you have, let's say a cow and he's on your property for life and know that cow is raised the best possible way she could be. And then, you know, a large caliber bullet in her head, that might be a different story. But let's face it, that most of us are buying our meat packaged at a grocery store, supermarket. And I will tell you, as an expert, the way these animals are treated, the way they're transported, the way they're raised, and the way they're slaughtered in a large-style facility is horrifying. It is a horrifying experience from them. And remember, this is coming from your average Joe. I'm no different than anyone else out there listening to this program that are meat eaters or vegans or vegetarians. What I can tell you firsthand, and I am one of the most seasoned undercover animal cruelty investigators on our planet, that farm animals, which make up to be, I I think the figure is 99.9.3%, something ridiculous of the animals that are inhumanely treated. These are the animals entering our food supply an extremely, extremely high number. And there's just a lot of suffering involved in the animal food world on our planet. Well, how do you speak to people who then will just say, well, listen, I'm always going to eat meat. So if this guy is describing inhumane as 
just the regular status quo, the things that are even covered and are following the regulations of the humane conditions described in the Humane Methods Slaughter Act of 1978. How do you get those people to pay attention to levels of severity? First of all, I do a lot of undercover work with the USDA, with state agriculture units. I work side by side most of the time with enforcement, with sheriff's departments, DEA, FBI, so on and so forth. And and it's funny because some of these departments actually title animal activists, animal defenders as terrorists. And I work so closely with them. It's, 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 it's hmm. you know, it's kind of funny. But although basically the laws geared towards animals in the United States of America aren't strong enough, right? So when you look at the Humane Slaughter Act, should that be changed? Yeah, of course it should. Things need to be updated. We live in a new time from, what, the 70s? And we're evolving as people. So even though there's a law that says you can do something or you can't do something, doesn't mean that it's right. Doesn't mean that it's ethically proper, okay? The United States makes a ton of money on the animal agriculture industry. And like I'm dealing with right now with the largest dairy investigation in the history of our planet, we're exposing right now, government protects these industries, whether there's a certain level of cruelty there or not. Why? Because it creates jobs. It's industry. But okay, so the the people out there, even that don't even like animals, that don't care if they're tortured and disassembled alive and, and inhumanely handled, all you have to do is look at your health, really. And, and you can decide on diet change from there. So, you know, the leading cause of death on our planet is heart disease, right? Most of that heart disease stems from an improper diet, but animal products. So, you know, consuming dairy, consuming too much meat, our bodies are not designed to eat such products. That is a good argument for dietary consideration. But let's start with horses. And I'll tell you why I think it's interesting, the horses in particular, because that was really your entree into making this your life's work. But it's also a place where we feel differently about horses. So even even I was kind of repulsed by all of the horse meat that I saw offered at really nice restaurants in Japan, for example. And the idea of eating horse meat, although I'd have no problem eating cow and other kinds of meat offered, the idea of eating horse meat kind of stopped me in my tracks. And as I understand it, horses in the United States can be sold and shipped to other countries where it is legal to slaughter for food. But there's a little bit of a conundrum. In other words, Meat that is slaughtered for food consumption in the U.S. has to be USDA approved, and horse meat is not horse meat is not USDA inspected, so therefore it can't be consumed for food. But it's not illegal to consume it for food here; it's just illegal to sell it for for food consumption because it's not USDA approved. Is, is that correct? It is correct, but there are a lot of gray areas in there. Since I do work so closely with the USDA and the divisions that actually inspect food, whether a horse is killed in the United States and that meat sold for human consumption or horse meat that's brought into the United States through our border system, it's illegal. Congress pulled the funding for the USDA to inspect any horse meat at all in the United States, right? Which makes all horse meat illegal in the United States for human consumption. Unless you you have a horse in your backyard and he dies of natural causes, or, you know, you kill your horse, and you you consume that yourself, you're not going to be hauled off to jail. Although, if you kill a horse, let's say, in the state of Florida, 
which the state of Florida is very different than any other state in the U.S. as far as horse meat's concerned, and we can get into that. You kill a horse in the state of Florida, and I catch you, or law enforcement catches you with a piece of horse meat on your fork for human consumption. You're going to prison, mandatory, first-time offense, between one to five years in prison, mandatory, and a $3,500 fine. It's a stronger penalty to get caught with horse meat for human consumption in the state of Florida than it is to get caught with heroin, cocaine, or, or any other drug out there. It is, a, it is a severe crime here. Well, I want to get into, I know your work is international, and I want to get into that, but because it started in the C9 Basin, which is a unique area, and I'd love to explain that or bring listeners to kind of get the vibe of what that C9 Basin is. It's described as kind of a Latin American version of Apocalypse Now, the El Campo lifestyle. Two areas to consider. One, would like to touch a little bit on why it's so, why is horse so sacrosanct there and why is it so illegal in Florida? And then also talk specifically about your work and where it started in the C9 Basin and kind of describe that to listeners. Yeah, so listen, if any of the listeners have been to South Beach, to Miami Beach, and they're sitting on the sand, turn your back to the ocean and look west and then walk, let's say, 15, maybe 20 miles, if that you're going to hit an area called the C9 Basin. The C9 Basin is a geographical buffer zone to the Florida Everglades. Right on the other side of the basin is the most fragile and protected lands on the face of our planet, the Florida Everglades. This is a very large area. And I would say maybe 75 years ago, 50 years ago, it was taken over by Wajitos. Wajitos are basically Cuban countrymen from the mountains in Cuba. And they brought that lifestyle to that area. It can be a very frightening, frightening place. It is extremely dangerous. Anything and everything goes on and is allowed to go on in the C9 Basin. Law enforcement do not enter the basin. It's no man's land. And it is ground zero for illegal horse meat trade in the United States. It's where it all happens. Is it a place that was not really considered for human habitation? Is that why things are allowed to go on? Or is there some kind of legal situation where things are allowed to go on there? Is it just because it's so dangerous that people don't want to go in there except for crazy people like you? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I I, I, I suppose a little bit of both. It is, again, it's an environmentally protected area. So most of the buildings you can't build, right? So if there there are a certain amount of buildings in that area, they're probably illegal. Although because of lax enforcement, And that, including building and zoning and neighborhood compliance and those departments within the city of Miami in Miami County in Florida, these people have have been allowed to rip into our environment out there and build these little shanty huts. And it started as possibly 50 years ago, but it increased to major nightclubs, major bars and restaurants. When I started investigating the basin, right after you know, I rescued Freedom's Flight, the racehorse, I started to open my eyes and see how many illegal slaughterhouses there were there and how much horse slaughter was going on there, how many animals were being brutalized for religious purposes. And I was a developer in South Beach, so I would build my buildings during the day, and I started infiltrating the C9 Basin alone in the middle of the night, property by property, and collecting evidence for enforcement. And 
it stemmed from this investigation, this, this one man crusade, I guess you could call it, led to the largest strike force ever to be assembled in the history of the state of Florida. It turned out to be the largest animal cruelty investigation in history of our country. And over 85 properties were raided, over 75 slaughterhouses were raided and disassembled and closed over, I think it was 18 animal fighting operations, over 30 properties geared towards animal sacrifice for, you know, you know voodoo, Santeria, Palomayombe. And I did it all because I knew that people and government officials really didn't care about animals. I went by my background, which was building and development. And I saw that most of the buildings weren't permitted, right? It, everything should have been raw land. So I went straight to the building and zoning, knowing that there's no way that a certified engineer could sign off on these structures as, as habitable um, and safe, safe dwellings. And I knew that I could shut and, and tear these places down within 90 days, because that's basically, you know, if you, you have built an illegal structure in your backyard and you can't get it certified without a building permit, you can't get it certified by an engineer within 90 days, you have to tear that down at your expense. Right. Because building building codes are a lot clearer than humane treatment of animal code, I think, probably. Absolutely. So basically what happened is the, the properties were raided. Hundreds of people were arrested on animal cruelty. But the way that we leveled the C9 Basin was through building and zoning. And when it was all, all said and done, we went in with bulldozers and we leveled over 700 structures. And that included houses, nightclubs, restaurants. Most of it were buildings, you know, geared towards animal fighting, illegal slaughter, horse slaughter, and animal sacrifice. But it, it was it was an amazing thing to see hundreds and hundreds of federal, you know, people from D.C., federal officials, special agents coming into that area, taking control and, um dropping the hammer on these people. Wow. And I want to put a pin in that and come back to that. But I want to touch on, for a second, your international work, because as you're talking about using building and zoning codes, which is a brilliant way to make it very clear that people are conducting illegal activity, like I said, you know, and like you said, a lot clearer than whether the treatment of these animals are legally humane or not. You're also doing work now internationally. And I know you have a team of volunteers all over the world. How do you deal with the fact that different countries have different cultures around animals? We eat cows, the Hindis don't, for example. How do you deal with enforcing? Mm -hmm. Are you just enforcing local law or are you also making people aware of what might be illegal but is certainly is certainly inhumane? And I, I know that there's been excreting the bile from mm -hmm. bears and, all, and, and, and selling and trading and elephants, all kinds of things. How do you deal with the different international cultures? It, 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 yeah, you know, the, it's funny, the excuse everywhere, including I, I used it for so long is cultural. So as far as, listen, part of our investigations are educational, opening the eyes of that particular country or the world, and or we do work with local government and national government in countries that we infiltrate. And I think the best example is in Nepal. We are undercover we're hitting the dog meat trade very soon in Cambodia, Vietnam, the Philippines. We're undercover in Mexico, India, Nepal, and a few other countries. But as far as an investigation in entering a country, the first investigation, international investigation we did was in Nepal in a place called Gatamai. And Gatamai is the largest animal sacrifice ceremony in history of our planet. 
and they sacrifice over half a million animals in a two-day span in a temple called Gadamai, right near the birthplace of Buddha, ironically enough, and right on the border of India. And it's the largest pilgrimage on planet Earth as well. Millions and millions of people from India make a pilgrimage to Nepal, and they bring in their animal. They're bringing these animals from hundreds of miles away on foot. Most of them are either goats or baby buffalo. And they're bringing them to Gadamai, which is once every five years. And this has been going on for 263 years, I believe, and is widely known throughout those countries as their number one festival. Is it religious-based? It's religious-based. What religion is this? Hindus and Buddhists. Now, ironically enough, most people consider Buddhists and Hindus as to be some of the most passive people on our planet, although <laughs> they are some of the most violent with the animals within their, their scope of religion. What we saw there and recorded at Gautamai, we were there for roughly two weeks, um, our investigators, including myself, and the things that we recorded were incredible. I, I've never seen it before at that level and that scope. But we get a lot of heat for entering that country because we, we do so much good in the United States. People said, you know, the, you can't do anything there. You're never going to get anywhere. You're just going there to create propaganda throughout the world of the ceremony. Well, that's actually untrue. When we left Gadamai, we went in as people that were, there, were very blind to their culture. But we educated a country. We educated a a committee which oversaw that ceremony and a government when they knew that Americans were there to document this ceremony, which had never happened before. They were the, the government of Nepal started feeling very, very threatened along with the English, along with the French. What was the worst thing you saw at this ceremony that, that you alerted local people to, or they saw that Westerners were, being becoming privy to what's the worst thing that you saw and was it a surprise to officials or was it just a surprise that people were repulsed by it well in the ceremony to give you an example in one hour they sacrificed over ten thousand buffalo in front of me and i was in the middle of the bloodshed and most people in nepal and in india and throughout the world thought that the animals were being sacrificed their heads were being cleanly lopped off and it was humane what we saw were they were hacking into the backsides of the animals. They were cutting off legs when they would run from them. Horrific cruelty. Some of the babies weren't butchered at all. And, you know, teams came in in the middle of the night and butchered them alive for their meat. But what we did was different. Arm investigators, and we are made up of ex-special forces, ex-military, ex-law enforcement, ex-military contractors, and civilians. But we entered the pilgrimage with the people. I wanted to know how important it was for them to sacrifice an animal at Gadamai. How important was that bloodshed? Because every animal that's sacrificed is a wish. And that wish is usually for children. If a person's wife is having problems becoming pregnant, that will be their wish at Gadamai. And I asked hundreds of people in different areas throughout the pilgrimage, if you knew that you couldn't bring an animal for bloodshed to Gadamai, what would you do? Would you still come to the festival? And they all said, 100% of them said, of course, we would bring other offerings. We would bring spices and flowers and jewelry for Gautamai to give us our wish. 
And I said, interesting. And I got that on footage. And we played that for the committee. Their excuse was always, if we stop the bloodshed, no one will come to the event anymore, which brought in a lot, a lot of money for the government of Nepal. Once I showed them that, they turned their heads and they had never heard that before from the pilgrims. So I, I said to them, your, the Gautama festival will continue. It will gain in popularity because many of these people are horrified by what they're seeing. The bystanders, the children, they're crying they're, and, and you know, there's blood everywhere in, in the festival that all it is is killing. And, and the name of the festival is the festival of blood. Hmm. Um, wouldn't you know, that months later, I'm sitting in my office and I saw a news feed on, our, on my computer. The committee of Gadamai outlawed all bloodshed for the, for, for the rest of the festivals for its life. They outlawed bloodshed. They outlawed killing and sacrificing of all animals. And that day, they actually renamed Gadamai from the Festival of Blood to the Festival of Life. And... Mm. It was amazing. And it wasn't just ARM. It was the Humane Society. It was, it was the animal organizations in Nepal and in India and, and worldwide. But it showed that small nonprofit organizations can go into a country that they've never been to and have never n- not control over and make change. Change can happen. And, you know, you just have to, you have to do things a little bit different than how everyone else has been doing it for years. And when I got to Gautamai and I saw everyone sitting at the main temple waiting for some of the larger sacrifices to happen, and they weren't happening for another week, I wanted to do something different, which is why we got out into the field, into the pilgrimage with the people, and we told their story. That's, I do think, where the, you know, the change stemmed from. You also have that story to use to point to some of the things going on here that you're working on. I know you're working on animal sacrifice issues here and kind of bringing Mm -hmm. these issues to the fore, but you've been accused of being a witch hunter by practitioners of voodoo and Santeria, and Mm -hmm. they claim that, that they have religious freedom, and does this get sketchy? And, and, And also, actually, does this, does the city of Miami outlaw sacrifices under voodoo or, or under religious ceremony? Yeah, they, they actually tried. Um, so it, it's, it's not only me and Arm that, that's, that, that wants to go after these people. The city of Hialeah, which is a city right next to Miami, um, it falls under their, their, you know, their, this, their county. Um, they, tried to sacri- they tried to outlaw Santeria about 20 years ago. Now, if, because so many animals were being treated inhumanely and inhumanely sacrificed in Miami-Dade County in the state of Florida, but they, they outlawed it. What they, what the problem is wording, right? So when you write a county ordinance or a state law statute, it's all about wording. So what they did is they outlawed Santeria, which was prejudice, because right. that's only one religion. Right. Now, if they outlawed animal sacrifice for religious purposes, it would have been different. So that went to the Supreme Court in D.C. And the Supreme Court judges don't really look at that many cases, but they that particular year, they looked at that one. It was very interesting to them. And it, it was a very close vote. They voted in favor for the Santeria priests that took this case to the Supreme Court. They did admit later on that if the, if the ordinance was written differently, if it was worded differently and it wasn't racist, then 
they would have voted differently. So what ARM is now doing, geez, for, for I, I think about for the past seven years now, we've been collecting evidence. We are going to be taking that back to the Supreme Court. And with this time, a host of inhumane animal torturings geared towards religion. Okay, so these judges are going to have an eyeful. And it's going to be worded properly this time. Now, why are we going after it? We're not trying to desecrate a religion. We're trying to protect animals. Some of the worst animal tortures that we have documented and witnessed as investigators have been for religious purposes. We're not talking about a goat just having its head lopped off. We're talking about goats and sheep and dogs and African lions that are being tortured over a week or even over a month's time. They're being tied or nailed to crucifixes and tortured to get the Diablo, the devil, into that animal prior to the main ceremony. And if that ceremony is geared towards your death or my death or someone else's, they think that that devil is now in that animal because there's so much pain and suffering in that soul of that animal that once that head is lopped off, it's going to go directly into the person that that ceremony is geared towards. And most people in the United States and the world don't understand how many people are practicing this. Millions of people in the United States are practicing Santeria. They're, they're voodoo, follow my own bay. It is growing. Just for clarification, are these different religions, when you talk about voodoo or you talk about Santa, Santeria or Palomayombe, aren't these different religions? And is this something that they all share, this common understanding, practice, ritual? Or are, are there distinct, can you distinguish between the different religions? Are people in voodoo feeling like you're picking on them because you're calling them the same as Palomayombe practitioners or... Is it so similar that the distinctions are irrelevant? Yeah, they, they all are different religions, right? So, for example, Palomayombe and Santeria are two different religions, although mo- many people now that study Santeria are moving towards Palomayombe, and they're, they're studying both. It's all, it all really does fall under the realm of voodoo, um, a- along with a lot of the Haitians and, and what they're doing with, with their religions and their, their sacrifices. Yeah, these people are very threatened by ARM. We are the only animal organization that is investigating them at this type of level. They feel as though we are their number one threat because we are exposing issues that they've been suppressing and have said that haven't been going on and they do not do certain things to these animals. We're showing the world that they are. What are they claiming to do that you are saying, no, that's not what you're doing? What's the biggest distinction? Because when the Supreme Court looks at this, there'll also be, again, that gradient between slaughtering an animal to consume the animal, slaughtering the animal humanely to consume the animal, and slaughtering the animal in an inhumane way. And sometimes it's really, really obvious. And sometimes it's maybe not as obvious. What are they claiming that they're doing that you're saying, nope, nope, that's not what you're doing? I mean, really, from the birth of the animal to the sacrificing to their final demise, we're exposing issues that they have been saying for decades aren't going on. In other words, we're going in and buying goats for sacrifice undercover for Santeria. Just the the handling of that animal violates state and federal law. They'll take two goats, they'll hogtie them, they duct tape them together, they put them in trash bags, and they throw them in your trunk for processing, for sale. Many of these animals are suffocating to death. 
they're being put in trunks that our thermostats are, are reading 140 degrees. So you get the inhumane transport, the inhumane handling. A lot of the people that are buying these animals for sacrificial purposes aren't doing the ceremony that night. So they're keeping these animals, they're throwing them in their garage. Sometimes they're taping their mouths shut and they're just, they're no food, no water. They're leaving them taped together. Imagine the fear of these animals. And then, of course, the ceremony. So they're saying that the animals' heads are lopped off right away and then the meat is consumed. Not correct. Not true. The animals many times, again, as I said, are being tortured over a week's time. There are pictures on our website of dogs. You know, they're tortured for over a week. They're, they're breaking bones on a daily basis. They're trying to get the evil into that animal. If the ceremony is geared towards you and they don't want you to talk because let's say you have information that could send these people to prison, they'll take a skill saw and they'll cut the bottom jaw in half of the animal, whether it's a dog or a sheep, while that animal's alive with a skill saw. Most of the carcasses that we're finding in ritualistic areas, all of them have their, their bottom jaw severed because they think that it's going to make you have the inability to talk in court. It's incredible, but they believe that. Many times they think that if they dispose of the animal in a major intersection, let's say in Miami, if they put the animal on the side of the curb under a palm tree or directly in the middle of the intersection or a railroad track, that it's going to enhance the spell. We're finding trash and debris and sacrificed animals all over the place in our cities. Again, that's another violation of law. It's a, it's a, it's a nuisance law. But they're violating laws from A, B to C. Hmm. And again, we are the only organization that is going after them and showing this to the greater public, which is why we're such a threat to them. We've basically shown their lies. One other thing, and this resonates throughout America with their love for dogs. Ogun is one of the main gods in Santeria. Ogun, the only way he can survive is to be given dog. So what do they sacrifice for Ogun? They sacrifice dogs, puppies, by the thousands per week in Miami alone. There are pet stores in Spanish-speaking neighborhoods that are geared just to sell dogs for sacrifice. And we're exposing that now. That is something that they've denied for decades, they do not and would not sacrifice a dog. It's their main animal for sacrificing. We've just proven that. So again, it's all part of building a case for DC. Well, that's a scary place to be investigating because I can imagine that you're putting yourself in tremendous danger. Yeah. I mean, listen, all of ARM's sites are black sites. Utilities that aren't in our names. I think in a two-year time period, I had to move seven times right when I started this campaign. You had to move? Seven times, yeah, in two years. Because they kept finding me, and I didn't know how they were finding me. You know, now I knew that there were practitioners that worked for the utility companies. They were tracking me through utilities and through background searches. So we've, we've gotten smarter. So now, you know, nothing's really in our name. It shows the threat that we are to them. They literally think that if ARM is wiped off the face of the earth, that their religion will continue. They feel so threatened right now because they know the evidence that we've collected and that if we take that to D.C. and Supreme Court looks at this, they are going to outlaw animal sacrifice within their religions. They're not going to outlaw their religions. We don't want that. They're going to outlaw the torture of animals for their religions. Well, that's one thing that is clear in your investigations, 
But you've also just revealed something that is probably considered more mainstream, but I don't know, maybe perhaps to you equally dangerous, which was the largest dairy investigation ever. Can you talk about that yet? I can, yeah. We actually just went public with two, and we investigated a host of dairies for the first time in the United States, possibly the world. Instead of investigating one dairy, we went after a geographical zone of dairies. We're going public with a few more this week and next week. The dairy industry is one of the worst animal cruelty industries on the face of the earth next to the bear bile industry in Asia. Okay, But dairies have been putting face to their dairy products, to their cheese, to their milks. You look at a milk carton and you see a picture of a cow smiling, a cartoon character sketch, or a picture of a cow in a green pasture. They're putting a face to their products that don't exist. And I was one of the biggest, you know, largest milk and dairy consumers that I knew until a handful of years ago, because I didn't know. I didn't understand what dairies were all about. I thought there were magical places. I think when I was a, ch- a child, I wanted to work in a dairy. I did not understand. And I truly didn't understand until we launched this investigation, which is now titled Operation Florida Ag. We picked Florida first. And what our investigators have uncovered is one of the saddest industries that I have ever laid my eyes on. And I was personally undercover in some of these operations as well. But it shows you there's so much money involved in the agriculture animal world in the United States, in particular, the dairy industry. It is protected regardless of the cruelty. It's protected by agriculture departments, by the USDA, by the FDA, by the state agriculture departments. And what we're doing right now, we are not popular, although we are getting a lot of arrests. Local law enforcement, for the real first time, is making arrests on a large, large scale basis, not looking at federal law. And federal law, there's really no law. There, there are really no regulations and laws that protect dairy cows, let's face it. There aren't? Oh, it's, just, it's all state law? As far as national laws go, there are very few laws, if at all, that protect animals in the animal agriculture world, in particular dairies. So to answer your question, correct. If there are are any laws, they're so minute and so small that these departments won't look into them anyway, as far as the FDA, USDA, and Florida State Agriculture they won't look at them. And we've tried. I want to ask a question because I looked at your videos. You you gave me links to some of the videos. So I was a little privy to that. Thank you for that. And I saw yeah. what you were talking about. I mean, I saw cows being kicked in the face. I saw them being beaten with metal rods, poked, kicked mm-hmm. in the legs with boots. But I also yeah. saw video of cows being herded by it looked like a soft cloth or, you know, soft rag where they kind of whip the cow in the butt. It didn't look like it would hurt me, let alone a cow. When people see that, how do people say, okay, I want to continue to, uh, no, I can say this because I don't consume dairy products, but I want to continue to consume dairy products. I see this video that shows this cow being kicked in the head and prodded with this metal thing. That really repulses me. A little whip in the behind with a towel that doesn't really bother me as much. How do you address these degrees if the whole concept of dairy farms is just abhorrent to you? As far as the, the cloths, number one, they were, they were wet, saturated cloths with most of them had lines, heavy, heavy ropes on the end of them. And the cows were actually being whipped in the face in the reproductive areas. 
of their bodies. But to answer your question, the dairy industry, I consider it, and many consider it, the last legal concentration camps on the face of the earth. So what you have is misery from the second that a calf is born. Calves have to be ripped from their mother the second that they're born. And that mother is put directly into the milking barn because that milk is for you and me. Remember, it's not for the calf. Many people think that the calves stay with their mothers. Incorrect. The calves are put into basically veal crates in the middle of a pasture with no shelter from the sun, from the elements, from rain. Many of the calves were sitting in six inches of water. Imagine being a newborn baby and not being able to sit down because you're in a pool. And remember, the crates are four by six. Very, very small. It is proven that a cow has as strong, if not a stronger relationship to their baby than a human woman does. So imagine the women listening to the broadcast. Imagine having your baby ripped from you and not given time to recover and thrown into a concrete barn where they live for over 300 days. A cow isn't naturally go into a milking parlor and back up to a milking machine, right? They're not trained for that. So they're beaten to get them out of the holding areas and into the milking parlor. They're beaten to have them backed up to the milk systems themselves. They're beaten to get out of the milking barn and back into the holding area. These cows are not living in green pastures. They're living on cement indoors in overcrowded areas. They're lying and sleeping in their own feces in flooded out barns, in barns that are overheated. They're dying of heat exhaustion in the summertime. The misery is extreme. And looking at a lot of people, you know, they, they pride themselves on being vegetarian, but they still consume dairy. The dairy industry is worse than the meat industry, okay? Because a, a dairy cow is tortured and brutalized every single day for its entire life. The, the life expectancy of a cow is possibly 25 years. The majority of the dairy cows that grow up in dairies don't make it past four or five. Hmm. And, and then they're considered downers. They can no longer walk because they're so worked. They're still living in such extreme conditions. What do they do with them after that? Well, they either let them die and give them no aid at all, or they take them to slaughter, right? So, so now you have an animal that is the sickest it's ever been. And now it's entering the transportation. Now it's entering the auction houses. Now it's entering the slaughterhouse. Let me ask you this, because I could talk to you all day and I would love to actually follow a little bit more with your endeavors with the Supreme Court. But now someone's listening to this and they say, wow, I really want to get involved in ARM. What would you say to someone who mm -hmm. wants to join? Because it's not for the faint of heart. Yeah, it isn't. It's serious stuff. And we have very few volunteers. Most of our People are paid ex-military law enforcement, but we do have that percentage that are civilians. If you have passion to go undercover, be an undercover investigator, we also have a sanctuary division, armed sanctuary. You can go to our website, animalrecoverymission.org, and you can fill out the proper sections of our website and basically apply online. Okay. Um, but again, it is not for the fate of heart. It's a dangerous position, but we welcome people with interest. Fantastic. And we didn't even get into a lot of the dangers that you've experienced other than the fact that you've had to move seven times and what it looks yeah. like. And a lot of that can be seen on your website. And we'll give links to all of those things in the show notes. Before we wrap up, I always like to ask what I call quick curious questions, which are QCQs, things to kind of give a little personal peek inside your brain, your skull. What is something that you believe that most people think is crazy? Hmm. 
for the most part, being vegan. I thought being vegan was a crazy idea. And I thought that people that are vegan, they've totally lost their minds. They're all extremists. And that's not true. I am a prime example of, you know, all American guy. And I'm now vegan because I'm educated. So all it really takes is education. It's not, it's not about a person being crazy or radical or anything like that for diet change. It's a person being smart and that cares about his body. What is your favorite $100 or under purchase that you've made in the last six months? And it can be related to your profession, it can be related to arm or something else, just something random too. Yeah, probably a undercover camera that we got a boatload of footage on in one of our dairy investigations. And it's actually putting a couple of the individuals, they're now fired from the dairy and they're going, they're probably on their way to prison. So that's probably, that's probably my, my number one. And that was what, do you remember what kind of camera that was? I would like to put it in the show notes. You know what? I think that was a simple key clicker camera that we bought on Amazon. And I think it was like 75 bucks. Most of our cameras are specially built in New York by a guy that builds all the cameras for the CIA and FBI and, and U.S. military. But that was one little small purchase that went a long way. What advice would you give to your 20-year-old self? I don't know. What were you doing at 20? Where were you at 20? At 20? Where was I at 20? I think I was actually living in Manhattan. I took a year off. I deferred from college. And I was with my buddies hanging out and kind of li- kind of living a life. And I, I actually, I really lived a life until I was in my mid to late 30s until I opened, I really started opening my eyes to the world. And, you know, I, I grew up being taught that success is making a dollar, right? Becoming a millionaire, which, which I became, but I had a, a real void and I wanted to do something different and special. And here I am. And, I, and I've done that. I'm glad that I did a 180 with my life. I, I feel much more accomplished. So what advice would you go back and give your 20-year-old self? I would give my 20-year-old self a good kick in the pants and tell myself to break out of the bubble that I was in and get on the right path sooner than later. You know, I started my investigation career, I think when I was God, maybe 36, 37, and it's such a waste of so many years. I mean, I, I would have done it much earlier. I would have done it at 18 or 20. Where can people get a hold of you, Kudo? People can get a hold of me through our website. And a lot of those messages go straight to my email. If they want to email me directly, they can email me at kudo at arminvestigations.org or go to our social media, Animal Recovery Mission Facebook page. And our Arm Investigations Instagram is, uh, is where we put a lot of material as well. Good. We'll have links to all of that in the show notes. Any requests for people before we sign off? I think my only request is when you go to the supermarket (laughs) and you go to that dairy aisle for once, do me a favor and pick up that unsweetened almond milk. Pick up that cheese with no dairy in it and sample it and try it. I guarantee you're going to like it just like me. And listen, you're going to go back and start buying it instead of that whole milk. You're going to help the environment. You're going to help those cows. And you're going to help yourself because it's going to increase yourself and stamina and energy level and, and everything else. You're, you're actually doing yourself a favor by doing it. Well, thank you so much. This was excellent. I really appreciate you being on the show. I enjoyed it. Thank you so much. Richard Kudo is the founder, chief executive director, and lead investigator of the Animal Recovery Mission. Thanks so much for listening. I really hope you enjoyed the episode. 
Before you take off, I have a quick question and a few more things to let you know about. One, you can find show notes and all resources mentioned at appliedcuriositylab.com forward slash blog. And the question, would you enjoy joining the ranks of curiosity seekers and adventurous thinkers? If so, you are invited to join the tribe of the curious. You'll receive Quick Curiosity Monday. This short weekly email is curiosity lube for your brain. It consists of ideas I'm pondering, curiosities the tribe has shared, and things that I'm enjoying that I suspect you might too. Just go to appliedcuriositylab.com to join, or you can probably just pick your favorite search engine and type in Tribe of the Curious. And let's connect online at Becky Saltzman on Twitter and on Facebook at Applied Curiosity Lab. Finally, in order to avoid missing insights from outside the boundaries of ordinary, subscribe to Applied Curiosity Lab Radio on iTunes, YouTube, Stitcher, and all the other places podcasts hide and wait to be discovered. In the meantime, elevate curiosity.